Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, well, thank you, Adam. Thank you, Aaron and the band for leading us. And thank you for joining us online today as we worship together at North Bible Church. Now, if you are on our mailing list, you may have seen the big news, the big announcement that we made this past week. Adam just talked about it a couple minutes ago. But we are planning to return to in-person worship services here at our facility in just three short weeks on June 14th. And we're going to meet here at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. for worship services that day. Um, If you want some more information about what we're doing as we're regathering all of our ministries and regathering our worship together, we are—we uh, made a website, a page on our website where you can go on and see our regathering plan. There's a video on there along with a chart that'll walk you through what to expect over the next three weeks and then what to expect as we meet here again on June 14th. We're excited to meet together. If you've just been joining us online to this point, it's going to be a great time for you to, a great opportunity for you to come and join us in person for the first time. And certainly we look forward to seeing all of Uh, all of you who call North Bible Church your church here again very soon. So in three short weeks on June 14th, we'll look forward to seeing you then. But for today, though, we are continuing our series called Crucial Questions, where we have been taking the questions that you have been submitting to us online through our website, and we have been trying to answer those as we go through this series, kind of putting them together and then answering them, these questions that have had to do with everything from the Bible to Christianity to faith and culture. We're hitting on all these things. And let me say this, we've gotten 70 questions through our website so far, and they've all been great questions, and so we're looking forward to answering questions that are related to things like LGBT issues, science and the Bible, church and government, heaven and eternity, just to name a few. And so we're going to be hitting on those in the coming weeks and a lot more as we continue through this series. But our question for today that we're going to be talking about this morning is, why does God allow blank to happen? And I know when you've probably heard that question phrased before, that blank is usually filled in with, why does God allow bad things to happen? And I left this blank, or I left that blank there, because I believe our answer today covers more than just what happens when bad things take place. Where is God when bad things take place? It covers things like, why does God allow injustice to happen? Why does God allow crazy things to happen? Just chaos. It's not necessarily bad all the time, just chaotic. Why does God allow some people to really do well in life, and it seems like everything they do prospers and does well, and other people seem like they might be appointed to suffer, whether uh, it's with their health or with finances or different areas in their lives? And where is God when bad things happen? Not just what, why does God allow bad things to happen, but when those things happen, where is God in the midst of them? And I think those are a lot of questions that people are asking right now as we've been going through COVID and all of its impact. We know that not only is COVID impacting us in terms of health issues, but COVID has its impact in all kinds of different ways. As we've gone into quarantine, we have seen things like unemployment rise and domestic abuse arise. Depression rates have increased and the severity of people who suffer with depression has gotten worse and worse. We've seen things like alcohol and drug abuse on the rise. Suicide attempts. If you've been watching the news, suicide attempts have spiked during this time. And then finally, pornography use and other kinds of addictions. There was one porn site, in fact, that offered free memberships during this quarantine, which is kind of like a drug dealer offering a drug user their first hit. I mean, that, that kind of addiction and that kind of uh, pain and suffering is something that we're going to see continue for years because of what's happening right now. And so this question of why does God allow bad things to happen is a question that I think is on the forefront of every person's mind. Because it's a question that has really been asked since the beginning of time. In fact, this question is so is, has been asked so frequently throughout uh, history by philosophers and by theologians that it actually has its own name. It has its own moniker. It's known as the problem of evil. And the problem of evil is typically, again, a theological question that basically is phrased like this. How can a good God, who is sovereignly in control of all things, allow evil to happen? Now, when we open up the Bible, it's, of course, a reasonable question to ask, because when we open up the Bible, what we see is that God is both sovereign and he is good. And yet we know there are bad things that happen in our world. So it makes sense in some way to say, God, if you are good and you're in control of this creation that you have made, then why is it that bad things continue to happen? And I think almost every person has asked this question at one time or another. You know, most of us have probably not asked it in exactly those terms that I just put it to you. But but a lot of us have probably asked before, why, God? Why is this happening? 
Why is this happening in our world? Why is this happening to me? And anytime we hit suffering or discomfort, there's that, there, there, whether it's a big thing or whether it's a small thing, we're tempted to just ask, why? Why is it that things are like this? And it doesn't always have to be something big that we face. Sometimes it's the smallest thing that can cause us to start asking that question. And this is kind of embarrassing to admit, but uh, I, I still remember the last time I asked God why. It was two weeks ago. And I stubbed my toe on a dumbbell that I had left on the floor. And uh, <laughs> may sound like a really small thing, but I got to tell you, in my defense, it was the mother of all toe stubbings. I never stubbed a toe like this. And it was my pinky toe. And I felt like as soon as I kicked that thing, like the, the pain went through my entire body. I felt like I broke my toe. But I remember in that moment, it was like this existential crisis I had where I was like, why? Why is this happening to me? And of course, it's not an answer that is that complicated. It's not a theological or philosophical. The simple answer was, I left a 25-pound dumbbell on the floor, and then I rammed my bare foot into it. That's exactly why it happened the way that it did. But, it's, but it goes to show that just how immediately and frequently we go to that question all the time in some form. When we see something wrong or we feel something wrong, we know that there is something wrong with it, and we cry out to God asking why. But the question is, when real suffering comes, mere philosophical and theological answers are the last thing we want to hear. You know this if you've been through a time of intense suffering. And I think instead, what we're going to focus on this morning is not a philosophical answer, not necessarily even a theological answer ultimately, but it is a personal answer. And what do I mean by a personal answer? Well, you know if you've ever been in a season of deep suffering, one of the things that helped you to get through that season of suffering was probably one of two things or both of these things. People and your faith, if you're a Christian or if you're a person of faith. Right? And, and not just people, but people who loved you and people who cared about you and people who supported you through that time. But more than anything, probably people who had gone through the exact same thing or a very similar thing that you were going through. You may have found that those people were the most helpful people to help you get through a season of suffering. I mean, there's a reason why things like support groups are so popular, because there's something about being able to go through personally with other people who are experiencing the same thing that you're experiencing that helps us to get through suffering. And most of the time, when you're with those people, it's not some great epiphany that they tell you. It's not some, some wonderful thing that they just unlock about your suffering. It's just the fact that they are with you and that the personal presence of others who are experiencing the same suffering that you have, there's something about that that's healing that helps you get through it. And having a personal answer is one thing, but how about having a personal answer from God to your suffering? And this is what I believe is the ultimate answer to the question we are asking when we ask, why does God allow bad things to happen? Because at its heart, it's not a philosophical question. Again, it's not ultimately a theological question, but it's a personal question. It goes something like this, God, if you are good and you're in control of all things and you love me, why are you allowing this to happen in my life? And if you can do something about it, why are you not doing something about it right now? And if you say that you are good and sovereign, and this is the ultimate question, can I trust you? And that's the real question behind the question. Can we trust God to be who he says he is, especially when we're suffering? And that's the question that I want to answer for us today because I think when we answer that question, all these other questions kind of take care of themselves. And you might say, of course, if you're a person of faith or you follow Jesus, that, yeah, of course I trust God in my suffering. But again, my, and I think that's great, but my question to you would be why? Why is it that you can trust God when you're in the midst of suffering or pain? And another question might be, how would you explain to somebody else who is struggling with suffering or pain why they can trust God in the midst of it? How would you answer that? And I think it has to be something more than just, well, I have faith and I trust God. That's great as we're going to see that's central to what this is, but it goes beyond that in some ways. It goes beyond a place where we have to understand, okay, where exactly and why exactly can we trust God in our suffering? And to do that, I think we're asking personal questions, so I want to look at what God's Word has to say about how God responds to our suffering and where, where He is and what He is doing when we are in the midst of pain and difficulty. Is He present or is He distant? Does he have better things to do than to worry about our stubbed toes or whatever we're experiencing? Or is he there and does he care? And in the end, is he ultimately good? Well, to take a closer look at what the Bible says, I want to go to a, a book that is often used to talk about suffering. And, um, and, 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 it's, and it's 
a really good book to look at when we're talking about God and suffering because it's a book that covers one man's journey through really difficult suffering. And that one man, Job, goes through a, a level of suffering that is unimaginable. I also think one of the great things about the fact that the book of Job exists in the Bible is that God is telling us that he cares about our suffering. He, he dedicates an entire book, and not a short book either, a book of 42 chapters, a book that's 42 chapters long, that talks about the suffering of one man, tells us that God does care and he does see our suffering. But if you don't know Job's story, there's a reason why this is such a popular place to look at suffering in the Bible, because Job experiences almost every type of suffering that you can imagine. When you open up the first two chapters, it lays out for us exactly Job's situation. And I think as you read through this, one of the first reactions we have is we can't look at this and say, well, it's not that bad. I've been through worse. Because Job experiences suffering that's unimaginable. I don't think that anybody has experienced it quite like he has. It tells us in the very first chapter that in a day's time, Job loses everything. He loses his wealth, he loses his business, he loses his workers, and then all of his kids, his sons and daughters, are hanging out in a house and a freak accident happens. The house collapses on them and they all die in one freak tragic accident. And then as Job is mourning the loss of all that he's lost, his children, his workers, his business, he loses his own health as well. He's covered from head to toe in sores as a result of some kind of plague and he's just sitting there in complete misery. And by the middle of chapter two in the book of Job, Job has literally lost everything except for his wife and the fact that he is not dead yet. Everything else is gone. And in fact, it gets so bad that Job's wife at the end of chapter two looks at him and said, you know what, you would be better off just cursing God and dying. I mean, ouch, little rough. And then chapter three comes and Job's friends show up. Three guys show up, and if you've ever heard the expression with friends like these, who needs enemies, this is kind of these guys. I mean, they do, good, they, do, they do a good job on the front end. They show up, and they're, you know, they're walking up to Job, Job's house, and they see Job from a distance, and they immediately start weeping because they see the condition that he's in, just from a distance. And they spend seven days in silence, just being present with him. So all good things. They're trying to do what they can as friends. But then they open their mouths, and things just quickly go downhill. In fact, they provide us with a clinic of what not to say to somebody who's suffering. They say things like, your kids are dead because you did something to upset God. You know, you lost your business because you weren't righteous, and you have no money because you've forgotten God, and you've gotten the plague because you, didn't, you, you aren't honoring God and you're not listening to him. In other words, Job, the reason that you're in the situation you're in is because you deserve it. You're obviously not a righteous person. And this goes on for 38 chapters. This back and forth really between Job and his friends. And his friends say, Job, basically you're awful and you're getting what, you're what you deserve. And Job says, I know, I'm awful, I deserve to die. And then more of his friends saying, yep, you're really bad. And by the way, we're really good because obviously, look at us, we're not suffering. So God loves us and we're obviously righteous. And look, it's not all like that. There are actually some good uh, there are actually some good theological points they make as they're talking through all of this. But for the better part of this book, 38 chapters, this just goes back and forth. These men going back and forth talking about how to figure out exactly what's going on with Job's suffering. But in Job chapter 40, God shows up and first addresses Job for a couple chapters. And then in one of my favorite parts of the book, in Job chapter 42, God then addresses Job's friends. And in, seven, in verse 7, Chapter 42, God's, it says this, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Wow, how the tables have turned really quickly on all Eliphaz the Temanite, right? Who's the righteous one now? But as we get to the end of this, I think one of the remarkable things that we're supposed to learn about the book of Job is that all over 38 chapters, you've got these men who are debating uh, theologically and philosophically why it is and what exactly has happened to Job and why these things have happened to him. You get to this place toward the end of the book where God finally answers with wisdom. And he doesn't give Job the answer. He doesn't tell Job, Job, this is why you're suffering and this is why I've allowed it to happen. He just shows up and he says to Job, Job, where were you when I created the, the earth? 
And Job's got to be looking at him like, no, I, I wasn't there, but does that have anything to do with what I'm going through? And as God explains, he continues to point to himself, and he says, look, Job, here's the point. I'm not going to tell you why you're going through what you're going through, but what I'm telling you is that I have been with you the entire way, and you can trust me. I've created you, I've created this world, and I have it in control, and you can trust me. What God is giving Job, when he's been looking for theological and philosophical answers the entire book, is he gives Job a personal answer. I am with you, and you can trust me. I think what's important to see about what God says to Job is that he is with him, and it's an important thing for us to realize as well, because so many times when we face suffering, we, we act a lot like Job or Job's friends. We want to explain exactly why it happened, and we want to explain it so we can control it, and we want to control it so we can fix it. But suffering doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes we can't control it, and many times we don't have an answer for it. But we're told to trust God in the midst of it. You know, the Bible's full, the Bible's actually a book that's full of suffering. I don't know if you've noticed this before. And we talked about in the very first week of Crucial Questions the purpose of the Bible. And we said that Genesis 3 really sets the trajectory for the rest of Scripture. And in a lot of ways, it's interesting because Genesis 3 is kind of the place where human suffering starts, where the brokenness of creation starts. And so the Bible, in a lot of ways, is actually a story about suffering and is actually a story about what God is doing about it. And it's interesting to see that in Genesis 3, especially in Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise to Adam and Eve in the midst of the chaos and in the midst of the suffering that will come. In other words, if you don't remember the story, God says to Adam and Eve, look, I've created this wonderful world for you. There's no evil, there's no suffering, there's no pain in it, and I want you to live here, and I want you to enjoy it, and I want you to take care of it and cause it to flourish. And I want you to enjoy one another and just have a lot of babies. But there's one thing that I don't want you to do. Don't eat from that tree. Because if you eat from that tree, it's gonna break everything that I've created. God leaves. One of the first things Adam and, do, Adam and Eve do is they look at each other and they say, I think we're gonna eat from that tree. And they do, and then God comes back and has a conversation that I think I've had a thousand times with my kids. Did you guys do that thing I told you not to do? Did you guys break what I told you not to break? And at that point, God could have just walked away and said, okay, you guys deal with it. These are the consequences of your actions. I told you it would break if you did that. You did it, now it's broken. But what God does is Genesis chapter three, verse 15, is he makes a promise. And in that promise, he talks about the serpent crusher who will come and rescue, rescue humanity and defeat evil and suffering and pain once and for all. Now we know, once we get to the New Testament, that this serpent crusher is Jesus himself. So what God does there is amazing. He says to them, not only am I not walking away from this, but I am going to join myself with your suffering so that I can rescue you. And from Genesis 3 forward, as we see this, the, the window or the perspective of, of, of suffering throughout the Bible, we know that God is with us the entire time because he's joined himself to our suffering from the very beginning. And it needs to be pointed out here that since God is completely sovereign, he could have chosen to keep himself away from pain and to stay distant from us. He's sovereign. He could have done that. We can't avoid suffering. We live in this world. It's full of pain. It's full of suffering. We hit it. It, it, it hits us. Right? No matter what we do, we can't control all of it. But God could have stayed away if he wanted to. But he made a conscious choice as the sovereign God to enter into our suffering and to be with us so that he could rescue us. It's an amazing testimony of his love. And as we move to the New Testament, we see that God is actually with us in suffering in an even more intensely personal way. Seen in the fact that he comes to us as a human being, the serpent crusher, the person of, of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And Philippians 2 captures this journey of Jesus' incarnation really well, which is sometimes referred to as the humility of Jesus. And we see it in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, one thing you see immediately as Paul, as we read these words from Paul, is that Paul presents to us really four big steps that Jesus makes into suffering, into suffering, from being a human being all the way to a human being who is obedient to death on the cross. 
First, Jesus becomes a human being. The first step he makes into our suffering is that he takes on all the suffering that a human being typically experiences in this world. Hunger, thirst, physical pain, relational pain, emotional pain, all that comes from just being a human being who lives in this world that is broken. But he grows up also as a Jew in the ancient world, as a part of an ethnic national group that is being oppressed by a foreign power. So he experiences that. Secondly, in his humanity, he takes the second step and becomes a willing servant. The king of the universe doesn't use his divine power or influence to ascend to be an earthly king, as his disciples wanted him to do, but instead he made himself a servant to serve and to teach and to heal and to provide and to spend time with those who are even the most marginalized and the poor and the crippled and the beaten down, those who are the forgotten ones in the political and religious elite structures of the day. And he endured ridicule and injustice as a result. The third step he makes into suffering is he becomes obedient to the will of God, which leads him to even more suffering. And two events in particular that bookend Jesus' earthly ministry show us that vividly. One is in the wilderness, and one is in the garden. In the wilderness, as Jesus is being tempted as his, as his earthly ministry starts by Satan, he fasts for 40 days, and then he faces the temptation of Satan. Everything from turning that stone into a piece of bread that he can eat, to throwing himself off the top of the temple. And each time, Jesus commits to trust God. He quotes scripture, and then he commits to trust God in the midst of the suffering and the temptation that he's going through. And then as we move to the end of Jesus's ministry, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, probably the, the, one of the greatest statements of faith and trust in God in the entire New Testament. Jesus says, as he, as he has this cup of suffering right in front of him, Father, let this cup of suffering pass from me. But if it's your will, let your will be done and not my own. And so Jesus trusts in the midst of facing suffering. And then last, finally, the last step Jesus takes into suffering, as Philippians 2 tells us, is that he steps into the suffering of the cross. And there's a lot implied here. As Jesus steps towards the cross, the suffering intensifies. He is abandoned by his friends as he's arrested he experiences betrayal and loneliness. He's tried over and over again and convicted under false pretenses, so he's subject to injustice. He is mocked and beaten and spit on and publicly shamed and condemned as a criminal. And then he's nailed to a cross to hang there for three hours or more to die slowly and painfully from suffocation and blood loss. But this was not the most painful thing. The most painful thing that Jesus endures, the thing that caused him the most agony, was the fact that as he was on the cross taking our sin, fellowship between God the Son and God the Father was broken. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The physical pain that Jesus experienced, although it was great, was nothing compared to this. And the amazing thing about this is that Jesus, Jesus gives up his, 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 his fellowship with the Father and when he takes the sins to the cross, but he gives us this greatest thing, the opportunity for us to be reconciled and to have fellowship with God the Father again. So Dan McCartney says this about that. God knows what it's like to suffer, not just because he sees it in far greater clarity than we, which he does, but because he has personally suffered in the most severe way possible. The agony of loss by death, the separation from a beloved, the disruption of his own family. By that he means the Trinity. And again, all of this, we need to remember, was done voluntarily by Jesus and out of his love for us. And I think that's important to say because we might say, you know, if we're going through a time of suffering, how can we trust a God who has not suffered like we have? In other words, if God doesn't know what it's like for me to suffer through this, how can I trust him with what I'm going through? And yet, when we look at Jesus, we see that he willingly, willingly took on our suffering in a way that is even greater than what we can imagine. And if so, if we answer that we can trust Jesus in our suffering, then what should our response be? I think we all need to ask this right now because we are obviously in a time of suffering and pain. COVID has impacted all of us, whether it's impacted you directly, maybe it's impacted a family member or a friend that you know. Maybe it hasn't even been the virus. Maybe it's been some of the other things that we covered earlier that have been impacts and, and, and results of what has happened with COVID and the spread of this virus. Some of you are suffering in other ways right now that aren't even, in, aren't even related to COVID at all. Some of you will be suffering at some point in the near future, or you know someone that is suffering right now. In any event, 
we all need to know this. What do we do to trust God with our suffering? What does that look like? Well, the time we have left, I want to give you three quick things that you need to know. First of all, trust God and release the need to know and the need to control. You know, just think back to Job and our example with what God said to Job. God is basically saying to Job, look, you need to trust me when it doesn't make any sense, Job. I'm not giving you the answer. Trust me when you don't know what to do with the suffering that I've given you. Trust me when there is no explanation why. And trust me when there is no timetable for when this thing may end. I'm calling you to trust me. And if Jesus has personally earned your trust by his willing suffering on the cross, you don't need to have all the answers. Because you can trust the person who does. You can trust the person who is in control and the person who is truly understanding your suffering and enters into it for your good. So you don't need to have all the answers and you don't need to control your situation. I think one of the truths that suffering faithfully shows us is that we are not ultimately in control. And we have a lot of trouble accepting that fact. I think it's one of the most difficult things in going through suffering is that we just want it to end. We just want to control it. We just want to have some handle on it so that we can fix it and be done with it. And that's part of the reason why things like conspiracy theories are so popular during terrorist attacks and pandemics like we're experiencing now. I don't know if you've seen this. I don't know if you've, you've realized this, but conspiracy theories are like at an all-time high right now. And I have a theory about that. I think conspiracy theories are so attractive to many of us because they claim to explain what we cannot explain. And we're in a situation right now where we're facing a virus we've never seen before, and there's no cure for it in sight, at least at this point. And so there's a lot of uncertainty. And so conspiracy theories or things that claim to explain why things are happening and where they're going, we latch onto those things. And in many cases, we don't even question whether there's any basis in reality at all. And if some guy with a one-letter name starts posting a bunch of things on a blog without any kind of evidence or without any kind of, without any kind of truth behind what he's saying, people tend to latch onto those things if they give them a sense of control. And I think that's something we need to be aware of. Like I've seen this already happen with a lot of Christian friends of mine. They're getting all fired up about these conspiracy theories. And look, let me just say this. I don't believe conspiracy theories and Christianity are compatible. As Christians, we are people who seek the truth. And conspiracy theories are mostly based upon half-truths or speculations or outright lies that just line up with some kind of political or personal agenda. And when I think about what it means to be a Christian, we are people who live in faith by the truth. And so if you're on your Facebook uh, page and you post a link to a conspiracy theory article and then the next post is like a link to why the resurrection of Jesus is true, do you think people are really going to take seriously your post about the resurrection of Jesus if you're posting conspiracy theories that, are wild, that make wild claims about half-truths? And so if you really want to be involved in conspiracy theories and you, you like them because they're entertaining or whatever, go have fun with it. But please, one thing I'll ask just leave Jesus out of it. Now look, we need to be okay with the fact that we don't have all the answers and we weren't made to have all the control. But we do know the one who does and calls us to trust him when we can't control it. Whatever it is, whether it's a global pandemic or whether it's a personal health diagnosis. So secondly, we are called to trust God and don't waste our suffering. Now, I believe God has a purpose in your suffering because he doesn't waste anything. He's always working for redemption, so he doesn't allow us to suffer without a reason. And sometimes that reason is just personal transformation and redeeming uh, things that are around us and in our lives. Psychologist Robert Emmons observed that when people set life goals, they typically set these goals in four different categories that he's kind of broken down this way. So as we set our life goals according to these four categories, the first one is personal achievement and happiness. Second is relationships and intimacy, religion and spirituality, and then finally, activism or legacy. Now, before we get too much into this, based on that list, where would you say that most of your life goals fall into? And you might not be somebody who sets life goals, but what are the things that motivate you the most? And don't just say relationships and spirituality because you know it's the right answer. I mean, really look at this. Where do you spend most of your time and effort? What do you dream about? What do you naturally just talk about? What motivates you? What keeps you up at night? Because it's probably no surprise that those who spend most of their time and effort on the area of investment and personal achievement and personal happiness are the ones who are most devastatingly affected by suffering. 
Because by nature, suffering always takes away things like comfort and freedom and personal happiness. That's what makes it suffering. Suffering takes away jobs and finances and health. On the other hand, we've also noticed throughout history that suffering usually enhances relationships, it enhances spirituality, and it enhances personal character. You know, as bad as COVID-19 has been, and we made a list of all the ways that it has caused even more pain and suffering, I don't know if you've seen this, but God has moved in the midst of the darkness of this pandemic in some amazing ways. I know this because I've, I've had a lot of conversations with people in our church and other people I know who are following Jesus, and I've seen it actually in my own life. And here's just a sampling of a few of those things. Families have been able to spend more time together, and so we've seen reconciled relationships happen as people are literally forced to sit at the dinner table together and have dinner. There's renewed emphasis on personal mission. I've heard stories all over our church community of people who are going out and meeting their neighbors, people they, they, people they haven't met in like the seven years they've been living there. All of a sudden, they meet their neighbors because everybody's at home and everybody's walking around the neighborhood, and they've had a chance to care for their neighbors and to reach out to them. We've seen new and creative ways to stay connected and express love. We've seen drive-through birthday parties and drive-through graduations. And even though they're not the same, there's something kind of unique about how they display our love and our appreciation for people in our lives. We've seen people who've talked about reordering their priorities as maybe they've lost their job or maybe their financial market has taken a hit and they've had to really reorder their not only financial priorities but their life goals and the ways that they're uh, orienting their life. Sense of thankfulness and appreciation has come through from people. Like in the midst of suffering, just realizing that when those things get stripped away, we begin to be thankful for the things and appreciate the things that really matter. Some people have said they've had more time to be with God as their schedules have changed and they've been at home more. A lot of you have been inviting more people to church. A lot more people have attended online because it's easier to do that kind of thing. And then for a lot of people, we've been talking about greater personal spiritual growth just by being able to spend time with God, but also by trusting God more through suffering. Now, what do all of these things have in common? First of all, none of them come from the category of achievement or personal happiness or in regards to money or even health. To use the categories from before, these are all about relationships and spirituality. But even more than that, they're showing how suffering has a way of revealing what is really important, what really has substance to it. And so none of this means, of course, that we should go looking for suffering, but instead to remember that God brings beautiful things even out of suffering and maybe because of suffering. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7 says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So don't waste your suffering. How is God using it? How is God using it to bring transformation in your life by his grace and mercy and his faithful personal presence while we go through this time of pain and difficulty? How has he used it in your life to bring himself glory? Which brings me to the third point about trusting God. When we suffer, we should trust God and use our suffering. C.S. Lewis, who lost, his wife, who lost his wife to cancer when she was only 45 years old, once said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Now you may have heard that quote before because it's one of the great quotes about suffering in all of church history, in my opinion. But there's a part that comes after that that's less quoted, and it's a part that's really good, that I, that I really appreciate. He says this, it is, or pain is, God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So listen to what he says. He says, look, not only does God shout to us in our pain, but God uses our pain as a megaphone to rouse a deaf world to his presence and his glory in the world. Now, how does that happen? Well, I think this is one of the most difficult lessons to learn when it comes to suffering. And when you get to this place, man, you are like a sanctified sufferer. But it's, it's trusting God so that I can be a fantastic witness for who Jesus is in my life to those who are watching me go through suffering. In other words, there may be no better witness in the world that God is real and that Jesus lives than a Christian who suffers well and glorifies God in our suffering. So how do we become these faithful megaphones to the world? First, I think we need to be vulnerable. Look, when you are suffering or when you don't have it all together, it's okay to admit it and be honest. 
I mean, nobody likes somebody who just kind of arrogantly and smugly and flippantly approaches somebody who's going through a really tough time. And, and, that, and that's, that goes double for Christians. I think as Christians, we have a tendency to think, well, I've got to be joyful and I've got to be happy all the time, so I can't really admit that what I'm dealing with is a deep, a deep, deep uh, difficulty, is, is real suffering. But those Christians who admit their need are often the ones who suffer really well. And guess what? They attract the other ones who are suffering too because they look at them and they see them as people who they could trust with their own vulnerability as well. They become a megaphone to the world because they don't pretend like they've got everything figured out. And there are people who are struggling and they, there are people who are going through this in a vulnerable and truthful way. After all, this is what Jesus did. When Jesus saw suffering people and people who asked him for help for healing, he didn't look away. He didn't quote some kind of scripture offhandedly. He was acquainted with suffering, so he saw people who suffered. He could move through a crowd of hundreds of people and find the one person who was suffering the most. And he wept with those who wept, and he knew what it was like to experience loss. And people who are honest with their suffering recognize how bad things can really be and are honest about the fact that they can't control it. And in their vulnerability, they display their honest and desperate need for Jesus, which is what we all need in those times. And you know how much you need Jesus when Jesus is all you have. Vulnerable Christians do a great job of displaying that well. So be vulnerable so that people can see Jesus. Secondly, be humble. You know, we read from Philippians 2 earlier where we saw that Jesus took steps into our suffering. Well, right before that description of what Jesus did, this is what the verses, uh, this is what the verses right before it says. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, interests, but also to the interests of others. Look, Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, in other words, if there's any truth that you find in this gospel of Jesus, if you really know Jesus, and if you really have faith in Jesus and are born again by the Spirit, this is how it will look. You will have unity. You'll be of the same mind, the same love, full accord, one mind. And the basis of unity is what? Humility. And humility looks like what? Counting others more significant than yourself and looking to the interests of others. If you want to look like Jesus, you want to glorify Jesus, have this same mind that he had, which allowed him to step into our suffering and to redeem it. And how do we know that we're doing that well? It'll be reflected in real unity based in humble love for others. Not self-seeking, agenda-driven rhetoric that cries like babies and demands our ways like toddlers, but mature, self-sacrificial love that holds others' needs as more important than ourselves, looking to the interests of others in what we do. Now, do you remember back when uh, COVID first started to emerge? It was like three months ago, but it feels like three years ago. It was back in March. There was a, a time, a moment really, where mostly everybody was on the same page about what we were facing, at least what we should do. I think it was for like two hours on a Tuesday afternoon. If you blinked, you missed it. But we were in unity, not just as a church and not just as kind of, you know, a state, but as a nation, we were in unity of what we wanted to do. And it was based upon the fact that we felt we needed to protect people who were at risk. In other words, unity was brought because we were looking out for the interests of others. Now, of course, that moment lasted like a moment. It was gone, and then it was, cool, and then it was here, and then it was gone. And it seems like a distant memory because everything else in our world, just like everything else in our world, no one can agree on anything now, except that I'm right and you're wrong, which is a pretty audacious claim to make because especially when nobody knows much of anything about what we're experiencing right now. And what makes it much worse is that not only am I right and you're wrong, but the fact that I'm right gives me the right to shame you and to judge you. And I think if there's one thing that we can add to that list of the impact of COVID that this has had in our world and especially in our country, one thing that's maybe just as ugly as the virus is the way that people are treating other people that they don't agree with. And you know what the worst part about this is? What's so tough to take is how many Christians are responsible for this ugliness, this vitriol that is being spewed out against everyone 
who disagrees with them, even if it's other Christians, even if it's church pastors. Look, everyone has a different opinion on what needs to be done, what should have been done, what needs to be done going forward. The reality is we have our opinions and it's fine to express those opinions. But at the same time, if your opinions cause you to shame and to slander other people, you need to revisit why it is, what it is it's causing you to react that way. Specifically, I think you should take a look at places like this, which remind us of the importance of regarding unity and humility as the most important things as we follow Jesus. And let me say something here. I think that Satan, more than anything, wants to do, what he wants to do right now is divide the church of Jesus. We are making plans, all of our churches are making plans to come back, at least in the state of Arizona. And as we do, I think that what Satan is going to want to do to spoil our time to gather together and to spoil this celebration that we're going to have as we join back together is, is he's going to drive a wedge between people who disagree with one another on a various amount of things. He's going to cause us to accuse one another and to slander one another. And he's going to tempt us to do those things because he wants to break up the unity of Jesus' church. And because he is the accuser, he is the slanderer. And the reason that he hates the unity in Jesus' church is because Jesus loves it so much. We read John chapter 17. Jesus is praying for the unity of the church in the last night that he is with the disciples. And he says during that time, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Satan would love nothing better to do than to break up the love and the unity that we have for one another. Because when that happens, the witness of Jesus breaks down very quickly in the world. I mean, think about it this way. When the world looks at a church that is fighting with each other and publicly shaming each other on Facebook and YouTube videos or whatever it may be because they don't agree, the world doesn't want any part of that. I mean, if you were invited to a family's house for dinner and you pull up with your family and you pull, up to the, you pull up to the house on the front curb and you notice that in the front yard, the family is outside yelling at each other and shaming each other and trying to embarrass one another, would you want to bring your family into that? No, you'd probably just stay in your car and speed off and go home as soon as you possibly could. And that's what happens when the world sees us fighting as a church. They don't want any part of that. They may be looking for answers, but they're not going to go to church for those answers if that's the way that we are displaying Jesus. Now look, the unity of the church depends on us being humble. And I know, and I can already hear it, as we gather in a few weeks, there's going to be people who are upset about whatever precaution we're taking here on Sunday morning when we gather distancing and masks and, 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 and hand sanitizers and not shaking hands and all those kinds of things. Now, you have a choice of what you can do to react to those things. You may not think those things are very important, but there's a lot of people who do think those things are important. And out of humility and unity, you have the ability to choose to love your brother through this. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says that we're not to put a stumbling block in the way of another brother by exercising the freedoms that we feel that we have. In fact, Paul even says, look, I have a freedom to do a whole bunch of things, but if I know that by not eating meat, it will cause me to be able to remove a stumbling block from my brother. In other words, if me eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I won't even touch meat. I won't go near meat. If that's what it takes for a brother to be encouraged in Christ, then I won't even touch it. And look, in context, in context I think we could say, if my lack of willingness to observe precautions or even to wear a mask causes someone to not come to church, give me that mask. I'll wear that mask the entire time. I'll wear two masks if I have to. If it makes my brother more comfortable and at peace to be able to be here to worship. Or if it allows someone who has not come to church to come into church and to be at peace when they're here. Because we're not called to use our freedoms for the benefit of ourselves, but to use them in humility to love other people. So you may have opinions about what we're doing and why we're doing it, and you may think that, you know, uh, some of the precautions that we're taking may or may not be correct, and you may feel the need to send us an email or let us know about it. Let me just tell you ahead of time, please don't send that email. Just save it. Instead, think about what this has to say about how we love one another in unity, and we prefer others and think about the interests of others above ourselves. Finally, for God to use our suffering, we need to be faithful. 2 Corinthians 
Chapter one, verses three through five says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Like I think in this, in, this, in this scripture, we see a clear pattern here that is really almost a litmus test for whether we suffer well. If we've received true comfort from God in our suffering, it will allow us to comfort others in our suffering as well. Earlier, earlier we talked about the need that we have for uh, when we suffer, for people who have experienced the same kind of suffering to be with us and how encouraging and comforting that is. If you've experienced that from another person in your life, you now have a gift, a gift of comfort that has been given to you where you have the opportunity to do that for others who are experiencing the same thing. And since we believe that Jesus stepped into our suffering to redeem it and that that is our ultimate comfort of suffering, we have the same calling to step into other people's suffering and to redeem it as well. Philip Yancey, the Christian author whose father died of polio when he was an infant, says this, I would say pain is like a hearing aid. When it happens, it's up to us to tune in and to use our suffering as an opportunity for growth, for helping others, and for any way to redeem it. Now look, as we get to the end of this discussion about why, God, why does God allow blank to happen, I want to leave you with the best answer I think I can give to that question. And it's in the form of a Tim Keller quote. And it says this. If we ask again the question, why does God allow suffering to continue? And we look at the cross of Jesus, we still would not know what the answer is. However, we, know, we now know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. Now in the end, the question of why God allows blank to happen is probably the wrong question to ask in the first place because we're not always gonna find that answer. The answer that we do have though is better than just a mere explanation to why suffering happens. It's the solution to suffering. That a God who willingly stepped into our suffering to be with us so that he could redeem it, he could transform it, and he could make it even flourish in the blessing in and through our lives, this is the God who is with us in the midst of our suffering. It's the story of the Bible, life giving way to death, and then death being ultimately conquered by life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your grace and mercy is prevalent even and especially in the midst of our suffering. And as we think about what it means for us to follow you and to trust you in the midst of difficulty, Lord, I think that's on our minds right now. And I think, you know, when we go through these things, as we've talked about this morning, Lord, it's, it's difficult for us to see past this. You know our hearts. You know our condition. It's difficult to see past the, the, the situation we're in, sometimes difficult to see past the moment that we're in. And, and so we ask Lord, that you would remind us that you are with us and that that would mean everything to us. I'm just not going to erase the pain in every situation, but at least in the moment we know that we have hope and we know that you are with us and, Father, we know that you care and that you are not distant, but, Lord, that you are near to those who have a broken spirit and a broken heart because you know what it is for your spirit and your heart to be broken. And so thank you for your wonderful sacrifice for us. Thank you that you willingly joined into our suffering because of your love for us. And because of that promise that you made all the way back at the beginning, that you'll not leave us or forsake us, but you'll see us through to the end. And as Jesus said, you are with us to the very end of the age. We thank you for the way that you love us and you care for us in the midst of suffering. I pray for those who are dealing with issues of pain, or depression, or difficulty, or anxiety right now. Father, would you shine your light in those dark situations? Would you remind them that although they suffer, that you are with them? And although they feel hopeless, that there is hope. And Father, although they feel broken, that you mean to make them whole, and you are working good things out in their lives. And I pray that wouldn't be a hollow uh, theological or philosophical explanation, but Lord, they would feel it personally in knowing that you were there. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Well, thanks again for joining us this morning. We want to remind you to go onto our website, especially looking at that regathering plan so that you get a little bit more of an idea of what to expect over the next few weeks. And certainly as we begin to get closer to June 14th, when we're going to meet here again in this building, we're going to send out some more announcements and details about what it's going to look like as we meet here again together. And let me just say this. Thank you for indulging me with um, what we've talked about here this morning, I just want to say we have talked about what is essential and what is non-essential. That kind of kicked off the beginning of this Crucial question series. And this is really where we're coming from because the essentials of what it means to be the church are that we glorify and magnify Jesus, that we stay unified, that we have a unity within the church that reflects well the love of Jesus to our world. And i got to say that those are the things that we are focusing on as staff and elders. Those are the things that we're going to defend to the end. And these other things that are swirling around us are always threats to those things. But I want to remind you that those are the things that we hold to be essential. And so those are the things that we need to be together on. And so what this comes from is an encouragement to remember really what's important and what we want to prioritize as a church. And if that means sacrificially loving one another, and understanding somebody's perspective in a different way. These are confusing times. Everybody sees it differently. And so I think it helps us to be people who are more gracious and willing to listen to another perspective. So thank you guys. I love you. May God bless and keep you until we see you again. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.